today is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Before you turn there, let's pray for the sermon. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time that we can come and hear from you. And I pray that we would hear from you. That your anointing would be upon Paul as he brings your word to us and opens your word to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts to receive it and that you would change our lives, Lord, that we would truly hear from you. So use him for your glory. Guide him in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, actually the text that I'm going to preach from is in Psalms 89. Uh, so Steve was going to uh, read for us the initial uh, beginning or announcement of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel, but uh, we're clock's ticking, so we're just going to go straight into it this morning. Um, by the way, I do want to say we'll do this better, more appropriately after VBS, but I do want to say a, a word of thanks to uh, Suzanne and all the people that have worked incredibly hard to put everything together for the VBS. It's really been a great deal of work. And so, yeah, just amazing. So just wanted to, to say that. Okay, if you will turn to Psalm 89. Now, last week we looked at uh, the choice of David, remember? The choice of David. Saul, who was a Benjamite, um, he was the choice of the people, and he didn't turn out too well. Well, the people, if they'd have been paying attention to what God said earlier in the book of Genesis, would have known that the king was not to be from the tribe of Benjamin. He was to come from the tribe of Judah. So they got that wrong, and, uh, you know, that's what happens when you do things independently of what God says. So God decided that he was going to intervene. He was going to choose somebody. So he sent Samuel, the prophet, to uh, the uh, town of Bethlehem to the house of a man called Jesse. This man was not just any old guy. He actually was uh, a grandson of Boaz and Ruth who we studied a few weeks ago. So God's provision, God's providence, was working through the generations to arrive at the choice of David. Now, David was not the, uh, he was not the first choice of Samuel. Eliab, who was the oldest son of Jesse, looked impressive, and Samuel liked what he saw, and so he said, surely this one is the chosen of God. Now, he was not the chosen of God. Just shows you that Samuel, even though he's a godly man, needs to wait on the Lord. And uh, his judgment was not always 100%, like none of our judgments, none of our discernment is 100%. So we need to be careful about that. And then six other sons were paraded in front of Samuel. And God said, well, I haven't chosen any of these either. Well, that was it. 
or it seemed to be it. And so Samuel thought, well, okay, we've been through seven sons and we have no choice from God. So that must mean this is faith working, okay? This is how faith reasons. It must mean there must be another son. And so he asked, is there not another son? And there was. He was tending the sheep. And so they brought him in. His name was David. And God said, arise, this is the one. This is the one. The chosen of God. And so with that background, we go to Psalm 89. Now Psalm 89 is not written by David. It was written by a guy called Ethan the Ezraite, <clears throat> who lived after, quite a few t- uh, years after the time of David. And in uh, Ethan's day, the Davidic monarchy was not doing too well. Things weren't doing that great at all. And um, it looked as though <clears throat> these great promises of God were kind of falling to the ground because everything was fragmenting, everything was being pulled apart. There was ungodliness in Judah. Uh, enemies were all around. The kings had not really done what they were supposed to have done. The line of David seemed to be in peril. So, this is a psalm, really, of contrast. It's a psalm that contrasts the experience of the psalmist and the people of the time of the psalmist. We're not quite sure when it was written, but probably 100, 200 years after the time of David. And uh, things were not that great. So that experience and the promises of God in the covenant that was made with David. This is often a problem for faith, isn't it? God promises certain things. He says certain things about his nearness, about his faithfulness, about uh, the truth of his word. But what we're living, what we're experiencing doesn't match up to that. And we wonder, has God taken his hands off the wheel? Does God care? Um, Does God... I mean, is he involved at all? Should we go back to these promises and maybe twist them a bit, reinterpret them a little bit? Or maybe it's us. And maybe I'm just not good enough and maybe just God is ticked off with me. And that's why things are going like they're going. You see, Satan rubs his hands. He loves this stuff. He loves it when the Christian is doubting the word of God. He loves it when we're, we're thinking, well, hold on, where is God? And this has been a common uh, temptation to God's people for millennia. Here it is on display in this psalm, and as we will see. But the psalm starts off where we ought to start off, in the reaffirmation of the truthfulness and veracity and faithfulness of God. We must plant both feet in the word of God and in the promises of God. We do not, um, we do not interpret the Bible based on our feelings. 
We don't interpret circumstances based on our feelings. We don't interpret God based on our feelings. We interpret these things based on what God says. Do you understand? Your feelings about it, my feelings about it, are not a good indicator of the truthfulness or the closeness of God to you. I wish, I wish it was. Don't get me wrong. I certainly wish that when I, you know, that God would, would show himself, uh, through his, uh, felt presence in my life. So that I feel God all the time. I feel his love. I feel his compassion, his faith, faithfulness, his assurance all the time. Ah, that would make faith so easy, wouldn't it? Yes, it really would. But what about in pain? What about in grieving? What about in distress? What about in doubt? What about in, uh, you know, just fed up with ourselves? What about when things go wrong, as things do tend to go wrong in this world? What about just the humdrum existence of, of life? What about in these areas where nothing seems to change and everything's the same? And where's God in all of this? What about the sense of longing that we have that the world would be different, that things would be better, that things have to change? You see, this is where we have to bring the word of God to bear the reality of things uh, to bear on our experiences. So quickly, in the third verse, we're not going to go through every single verse of the psalm, it's too long. The psalmist says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. He's speaking, uh, or God is speaking through him. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. I will build up your throne to all generations. And yet when this is being written, the throne doesn't seem to be built, built up very much. And of course, what happens a little time after this? In 722 BC, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes that had split off anyway, they go on off into Assyrian captivity. In uh, well, there are different dates for it, but in approximately 506 BC, they go into the southern tribes go into Babylonian captivity. It takes there are different droves of that, but uh, in three different phases, they all end up in. Babylon. And that's it. No more king in Israel. And even when, under the decree of Cyrus, they are allowed back, it's 589, sorry. Uh, they are allowed back into uh, their homeland under Zerubbabel and Ezra and so on. There's no king. And the only king that Israel gets 
is several hundred years after that in the time of Jesus and John the Baptist, and that king is Herod. And the, Her- yeah, boo, and the Herodian dynasty. He's not even a Jew. And no king since then. What on earth is God doing? What are we to do with this, this word here? I have established your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Well, okay, God, I'm looking around here and I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it. This is um, a, a common temptation for faith. But faith, what, what it does is faith looks at present circumstances and it says, okay, there's a reason in this context of the reign of, of uh, Davidic monarch. There's a reason for this. They defected. The kings defected from God's justice, from God's uh, way, from his law. And therefore, God had predicted that if they don't stay with him, if they don't worship him in truth, if they don't make sure that justice is throughout the land as much as human beings can, they will be taken off into captivity. And that indeed is what eventually happened. And so the defection, the apostasy, that's all on them. Just like in our lives, when, you know, when we stop praying, when we stop reading the Bible, when we stop trusting God, when we stop working on ourselves and dying to ourselves, that's on us. That's not God's fault, that's our fault. And the things that come from that, doubt and a weak faith and uh, you know, worry, anxiety, boredom, all of these things that they come in, um, and those are things, those are fruits that we brought, a rotten fruit that we have produced ourselves. All through not relying on the truth of God. But if we rely on the truth of God, then we have something that is concrete under our feet. We have something that is true and will come to pass. Present circumstances notwithstanding, things will come to pass the way God has said they will come to pass because it is God who has said it. And it doesn't rely upon us. So look at the first two verses. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. God is faithful. We are not. So our faith should not be in ourselves. It should be in God. Do you see? God had made a covenant with David. He had 
providentially over several generations led up to through the, the, the story of Naomi and Ruth led up to the choice of David in the sheepfold to become God's king. Not for nothing, but because God had a long-term plan for the throne of David, starting with David, who was a man after God's own heart, but ending throughout all of the tumult and all of the concern and all of the suffering and persecution that there was, ending gloriously in the son of David, Jesus Christ. Who himself was rejected and yet will come back and will be the Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem. God is faithful. God's made a covenant. God doesn't break his covenants. Even when it looks as though the covenants are not coming to pass, that's because of our present situation. Do you understand? That's because of where we are in history. Well, once we get to eternity and we look back, we're going to see that God was absolutely faithful to everything that he said. In verses uh, 14 through 16... Let's skip down to there. There is a mention of God's throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness, they are exalted. There's so much in this, uh, I can't unpack all of it. But look at this. Look at what he said about the throne of God. The place in heaven from which God rules. What characterizes the throne of God and the rule of God, the reign of God in heaven, according to this passage in verse 14? Righteousness and justice. That's the foundation of his rule. Righteousness and justice. And when Jesus, the Messiah, comes again and reigns in this earth, he will bring righteousness and justice to this world. Do you see? The same as we see in heaven, or we would see in heaven if we were up there, <laughs> we would see righteousness and justice pervading heaven. And we were, going, we we're going to see that when the Davidic ruler sits on his throne when he returns. The Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's going to happen. That's going to happen. You say, well, what, in, in the face of what we've just considered with uh, child trafficking and the sex trade and all of this ugliness, this satanic ugliness that's going on right now, 
How on earth can you say that? Well, it's because Satan is the god of this age right now, but he is going to be kicked off his throne. And this world's going to do a turnabout. Because the one who's coming is at the right hand of the throne of God right now. And when he comes to sit upon the throne of David in Jerusalem, he will bring righteousness and justice. He will bring mercy and truth. Verse 14. And we need mercy. We need mercy from God. All the time, don't we? You know, if God just had a little bit of mercy, a little bit of patience, a little bit of compassion, we'd have used that up long time ago. But his compassions are everlasting. His mercy endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. God knows our frame. God knows that this is a sin-cursed world. He knows who's in charge of it temporarily. He knows about all of the evil machinations from governments down to um, industry, down to crime, down to, you know, all of the corruption that's in the world. He's aware of all of this. And it's going to change. And we have to remind ourselves that as we are passing through this or we're hearing about this or we're going to watch a movie uh, that details some of this ugliness, that God's throne is a throne of righteousness and justice and that's coming to earth. Jumping down to verses 27 and 28. This is a reiteration of what the covenant is about. It's about setting up a king in Jerusalem to rule over Israel, but then also over the nations of the world. So uh, the, the reign of Christ, he will be the king of Israel. But the king of Israel will also extend his reign throughout the whole world. So Nebuchadnezzar, for example, was the king of Chaldea, Babylonia, yes, but he extended his reign throughout to other nations too. Didn't stop being the king of Babylon, but he also extended that reign. That's the reign of Christ too. I will make him my firstborn. That's the, the one who inherits the promises of the covenant. The highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. This is the, co- the covenant that God made with David. The covenant that requires that the Davidic king will rule justly, fairly, graciously, and in keeping with uh, God's character from that throne, my covenant shall stand firm with him. This is 
This will be, of course, fulfilled with Christ. His seed, that is the seed of David and those that in the dynasty, also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Verses 34 to 37 say, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Now, this is so important. It's so important for us to understand that God's covenants mean what they say. God's covenant with Noah meant what he said. You know, so nobody here is expecting another worldwide flood. Why? Because you can't change the words of the covenant. Abraham's covenant included descendants, literal descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Yes? That's been fulfilled. It it spoke about land, a land that God was gifting them. That's not been completely fulfilled. They're in a land right now. It is part of their land, but it's not the whole land of tract that's given to them in Genesis 15. And then through that nation and through the one who was going to come from that nation, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Phineas. The one who drove the javelin, you know him? Remember the javelin guy? The covenant's made with him for an everlasting priesthood. Can't see it right now, but the covenant means what it says. And if your theology, if your understanding of the future does not have a place for the covenant with Phineas, you need to revise your theology. Because God's covenant mean, covenants mean what they say. And it's the same for the throne of David. If you think Christ is on the throne of David in heaven right now, reigning from heaven, not only are you blind, but you're not reading the Bible. God created us to be on this earth, okay? It's not, this is not a, a vehicle Okay, an old clunker to be abandoned once everybody's in heaven. This is the place that God made for humanity. And heaven's going to come to earth. So the Davidic throne is on earth. Just as David's throne originally was. Christ's throne will be upon earth. And yet there are people, good people, godly people, that believe that Christ is on David's throne right now and he's reigning right now. If he is, I'm not saying, I'm not, I mean, I'm saying this in faith. Do you understand? I'm saying this in faith. I'm saying this because I don't believe this. If he is, I could do a better job. I certainly couldn't do a worse job. He's not reigning from David's throne in heaven. He will reign from David's throne on earth and the earth will be changed because of it. That's what we're waiting for. Let's not charge Jesus with being so inept as to allow Satan to really run the earth and just claiming the title up in heaven. 
Okay? That's ridiculous. It is. It's ridiculous. And it's not paying attention to what God says in his covenants. And I believe the covenants. Because if you don't believe the covenants of God, why would you believe anything that God said? I mean, he swore an oath. So, it says, verse 36, His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Well, I've got news for you. The sun is a faithful witness in the sky, and so is the moon. Literally, you don't have to spiritualize anything. You don't have to say it's typology. No, the sun's there, the moon's there, faithful witnesses, and in the same way, the throne will be there in Jerusalem. Jesus will be there ruling, will be ruling with him. That's the way it's going to happen because God means what he says in the covenants. So finally... From verses 38 through 45, I know it's not in your uh, notes here, but if you just quickly cast your eye down that passage, you will see that it's pretty negative stuff. It comes back to Ethan, the author, and the times in which he was writing and the disarray that the Davidic throne was in. And it's basically, they're being plundered. Things are are rotting. Things are decaying. Things are fragmenting. What has happened to all of this great language? What has happened to the faithfulness of God? You see this refrain at the beginning uh, of the psalm. Look at verse 1. Your faithfulness. Verse 2. Your faithfulness. Verse 5. Your faithfulness. Verse 24, my faithfulness. Verse 33, my faithfulness. What has happened to that? Verse 30. If his sons forsake my law. Yeah. What we need is because we have a tendency to forsake God. God's always going to be faithful. But that doesn't help us, folks. That doesn't, just his faithfulness doesn't help us if he's not going to do anything about our propensity to sin and to go away from him and desert him and apostatize. Yes? He, unless he cures us for who we are, ungodly, unfaithful, unjust, unless he does something about that, He can be as faithful as he wants. It's not going to impact us because we're just going to open ourselves up to his wrath. What we need is mercy. What we need is salvation. What we need is grace. So verses 46 to 49, the psalmist ends the psalm like this. How long, Lord? Often the psalms have this tone, this... uh, ringing tone to them. How long, O Lord? How long? God takes a long time to do anything, doesn't he? I mean, he does. Yeah, he often doesn't show up until not the 11th hour, but one minute after 12. 
How long will you hide yourself? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Remember that we live these short lives. And what goes on in our time, it might be ugly and it might be uh, worrying and it might be concerning and it might savor nothing of God. So what about God? What is God doing? What is he going to do? Well, we don't, we don't look from our perspective, okay? That's the important thing. We don't look from our perspective. Our perspective has got to be God's perspective. And when we have God's perspective, which is based on God's promises and God's covenants, then we understand that we are moving forward to a glorious future, that we are moving forward to be participants in a glorious kingdom, which is forever, that we will leave behind all of this unfairness and all this ugliness. For what futility have you created all the children of men? This is a lament. This is talking to God, spilling your guts, as it were, not worrying about whether you're being deferential or not. For what futility have you created all the children of men? That's a charge against God, isn't it? It's not true. God hasn't created us for a futility, but it seems that way to the psalmist. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? No, but God can. And if we trust in God's word, everyone that that uh, dies, everyone that goes into the grave, their body goes into the grave, their soul goes to be with God in heaven in that very moment, and their soul and a glorified body will be reunited according to God's promise in the future. Where is your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Remember, Lord. Yes, he will remember. We're the ones who need to remember. Do you see? There's nothing wrong with calling uh, God's promises Uh, and uh, calling, as it were, his attention to his own promises. God wants us to do that. That's what faith does. Taking God's promises to him. You've said this, Lord. You've promised me uh, eternal life. You've promised me peace. You've promised me joy. You've promised me these things. Because when we do that, we're we're in a position to hear what God says we need to do in order to get those things. Where has all this blessing gone? Well, temporarily it may have been removed. That doesn't mean it's being removed forever. There will be a covenant nation of Israel that is a light to the nations, that is ruled over from Jerusalem in the future. And that light will go out and spread and knowledge of the Lord will be as the waters cover the sea. God has said it. It's going to happen. 
And those smaller promises, as it were, those promises to you, those promises to me, those promises of peace, joy, no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, those promises, yeah, those promises, they will come through too. And you will, there'll be a time when you won't just have to believe those promises because God says it, no matter how you feel, there will be a time when those promises will become a felt reality for you. Because God is faithful. Therefore, blessed be the Lord forevermore. The faithfulness of God endures. The covenant with David will come to, uh, come to pass with a king on the throne in Jerusalem exactly as God has said. God's covenants mean what they say and God is duty bound to make sure that they come to pass. That should give you a great deal of peace and satisfaction because God has bound himself in a covenant, the covenant of Christ's blood to the saving of your soul and your body. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, we would not let our feelings or what goes on around us affect our belief in your word and in your faithfulness. You are going to bring these things to pass. You are going to defeat the Satan. You are going to set up your king on your holy hill. We are going to see it. We're going to be part of it. We're going to experience the joy and the freedom of it forever. We, pr- we praise you and we bless you because in Jesus Christ we have the victory. And it's all, it's all given to us through him. It's his work on the cross. It's his resurrection, his defeat of death that assures our life. Help that to give us joy and peace and assurance in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.